From the Media Factory in the south end of Burlington, Vermont, this is 99.3 FM WBTV LP Burlington, streaming online at 993wbtv.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro. Today on Write the Book, you'll hear an interview with Vermont author Rebecca Valley, whose new book is Curious Cases True Crime for Kids Hijinks, Heists, Mysteries, and More published by Bloom Books for Young Readers. Rebecca Valley writes mostly true stories and mostly untrue poems. Some of her stories are for children, though adults might like them too. She received a BA in Comparative Lit and Poetry from the Evergreen State College and an MFA in Poetry from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She currently serves as the founder and editor-in-chief of Drizzle Review and curates writing prompts on Instagram as Living Room Theater. She was the 2019 winner of the Academy of American Poets Prize at UMass Amherst and a finalist for the 2019 Daniel and Marilee Glossband Fellowship and the 2020 Karen Skolfield and Dennis Gokel Award in Poetry. Her work has been supported by the Young Writers Project, the Vermont Studio Center, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the Vermont Arts Council. She daylights as an e-learning script writer and developer. Rebecca's middle grade book, Curious Cases, True Crime for Kids, was released by Bloom Books for Young Readers, which is an imprint of Ulysses Press, in July 2022. She's the author also of two poetry chapbooks, including The Salvage Man, out in April 2022 from Oblek Editions. She lives in Richmond, Vermont. An airplane hijacker jumps off a plane somewhere between Seattle, Washington, and Reno, Nevada, never to be seen again. Mysterious lights appear in the sky in the middle of the Arizona desert. Two girls convince a famous mystery novelist to believe in fairies. In Rebecca's new collection of true crime stories for kids, famous authors fake their own deaths, monsters walk the beaches of Florida, and million-dollar poodles are kidnapped at the dog salon. Introducing middle grade readers to the intriguing and exciting capers, stories, and mysteries behind some of history's most mysterious unsolved crimes, from daring escapes to famous art heists, Curious Cases is the first ever true crime book specifically for kids. I began my conversation with Rebecca Valley by reading the opening of her book. Here is uh, what she writes. This is a book about crime, so I want to begin with a confession. I am not a detective in the proper sense of the word. I don't spend my days chasing criminals down dark alleys or dusting doorknobs for fingerprints. I started my journey into the world of mysteries just like you are now by reading. So I asked Rebecca about this book, opening in this way, and also how she came to write it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This book kind of came to me in a funny way um, in that a publisher that I knew, Ulysses, um, they were looking for somebody to write sort of a mystery collection for kids. Um, and I was like, well, I'm I'm not normally a mystery writer or a children's writer. It was something I kind of dabbled in. Um, and I was a middle school librarian for a little while. So I was very fond of middle school, like middle grade lit um, and I was like, well, that sounds fun. Um, so I kind of threw my hat in the ring and got in touch with them and said, like, I could write this for you. It looks like you want it. I could write it. And they were like, okay. Um, wow. and so that's sort of how it happened, um, which is a little unconventional. Um, but I, I do appreciate, um, 
their process was sort of, we have an idea and we want you to bring it to life. And so it then became my task to figure out what a book like this would look like um, and what it should include and what mysteries uh, would be compelling for kids. Like I know what I think is interesting, but what will they think uh, is interesting? So yeah, that was kind of the the journey at the very beginning. Okay, well, that's cool. Um, and I do want I do want to know uh, about the subject matter. Um, but first, I, I, I you talk in the beginning of the book about having steered a biplane full of middle schoolers thousands of feet above the Green Mountains, and I'm like, what is that about? <laughs> Yeah, my first job uh, in high school, I was also in high school when I was steering the little airplane. (laughs) Uh, My first job in high school was working at um, a camp that was an alternative trades camp for girls. It's called Rosie's Girls. I'm not sure if it's still around in Vermont. I think it was um, kind of a national organization and we just had a little uh, section of our own up in St. Albans, Vermont. Um, And part of that, one of the days we went to an airport Uh, and had pilots take up girls in like little groups. Um, And in the middle of that, the pilot was just like, all right, it's time for you to steer. So I was just steering this little little airplane with a bunch of very anxious looking middle school girls in the back, wondering if I was qualified uh, to do this, (laughs) which I... I don't think I was. So that that's kind of that story. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because pilots are very autonomous once they get up there. You know, they can let you do that or or not. They probably yes. shouldn't, but right. <laughs> it's kind of exciting. It was fun. I've got to say, I'm kind of glad. Yeah. I'm kind of glad I got the chance. Yeah, that's fun. Um, okay, so I'm going to read another quote from the book, if I may. Despite what you see on TV, most detectives will tell you that crimes are rarely solved by brute force. Which is great. But once again, and as with the first quote that I read, I like the voice of the book. I like the way that it's very matter of fact, age appropriate for your readers, engaging. Um, I never thought you talked down to the reader at all or sounded like you were the... In fact, you're very humble about your own journey of finding these stories and figuring out these stories to share with them. So I wonder if you can talk about developing the voice of the book uh, in keeping keeping in mind your reader as a middle grade reader. Yeah, I think that was definitely something I wanted to be mindful of while I was uh, writing. I feel like um, it's easy as an adult writing for children to talk down or to be sort of um, the expert on the, the, right. uh, the hill or, you know, however that metaphor works. But um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I think... A lot of what I did while I was writing was thinking about the students that I had um, and how I talked to them and sort of thinking about questions that they would ask me. Um, You know, I remember one day really early on when I was um, working as a librarian, I had a a girl come in and, and I was like, well, yeah, you know, I can I can help you find any book you want. What would you like to learn about? And she said, forensic osteology. And I was like. (laughs) all right. (laughs) So, you know, I think I always keep that anecdote kind of in the back of my head. And I was, I was thinking about it while I was writing this book. Um, Yeah. I I don't think you should ever uh, expect that, you know, less than a middle schooler. In fact, they're such voracious learners and so curious a lot of the time that they 
probably know more facts than you do about a lot of things. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah, I kept that in the back of my mind while I was talking, while I was writing. So you've got an eclectic background. So you've been, so did you go to school to be a librarian or was that a job that you got and you had that, you know, good fortune? <laughs> yeah. So I was one of the people who kind of just fell into that. I didn't go to school for it. Um, I went to school for literature and history, and then it was my first job out of college was working as a middle school librarian. And essentially, I didn't have the title librarian, um, but I was the only person there and the only person responsible for the library. (laughs) So I was doing all of those um, kind of jobs, um, which, yeah, is kind of an interesting uh, debate within the library librarian community about whether in public schools you should have a trained librarian. Most people say yes. I think probably yes. Um, but it was great to to have that um, to have that job and it really shaped my worldview a lot. I would think also an education in literature and history is a really nice start to being a middle school librarian, right? I mean, and we all know the Dewey Decimal System for the most part, or can look it up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which yeah. is and not to minimize what librarians do at all, but I think that, you know, depending on your personality, if you're somebody who likes doing research and, and helping somebody find what they're looking for, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the other skills you learn, you know, like you just learn on the job um, about like how to acquire books and when to retire books and all of these things. Like, um, so yeah, that was something that I just kind of learned as I went. And I was lucky to have kind of a, a mentor uh, in that role who um, was no longer the librarian, but had served in that uh, role before. And so she helped me out quite a bit, um, which was lovely. Um, yeah. And then uh, I kind of transitioned and, and got a master's degree in poetry um, and yeah, I'm I'm now writing professionally, but uh, for a tech company. So kind of a weird career trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> and you got your master's in MFA? Mm-hmm. Where did you go for that? Um, I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Um, do you write other genres as well? So you write poetry and this is nonfiction for kids. So do you write other genres? I do. Yeah. So I... Uh, my general sort of philosophy with writing is that I'll try anything. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, it's paying um, off. It sounds like it's paying off. <laughs> yeah, it's and also it's fun. I mean, that's kind of what I'm hoping for is just to have fun. Um, so poetry is definitely kind of my first uh, love as a writer. It's something I always come back to. Um, and it feels kind of closest to me in that way. Um, but I also um, have attempted to write plays. That's one I'm still working on. That's a challenging one. Um, And then I will sort of dabble in fiction and nonfiction too. Um, I really enjoy writing essays. Um, This is my first um, attempt at writing for children. So yeah, kind of just, uh, I'm a a dabbler, I think is probably the right word to use. Um, Yeah. Okay, great. I, I think one lesson that's really valuable for, for all writers, and, and um, I'm going to bring it back to your readers, but it, it, this is a really valuable lesson, is that you don't make your antagonists entirely evil, and you don't make any character perfect all the time, because we all have, there's there's gray area, you know, nobody's all good, nobody's all bad. And you write in this book, some of the characters are detectives, and some are criminals, some are tricksters, and others get tricked. Some are victims, and some are heroes, even the most notorious criminals have a good side, and even the best detectives sometimes get it wrong. Um, So I wonder if you can talk about that. I thought that was a great message for for your readers. 
Yeah. I mean, I think like you said, um, you know, people are complex characters, you know, um, and I think it's really easy, especially in a genre like true crime, to have really clear villains um, and really clear heroes, right? Um, and I think the reality is that that's never true. Um, people are complicated. They do things for complicated reasons. Um, and I think ultimately focusing on that complexity, that kind of gray area is a lot more interesting uh, and a lot more exciting than having these very clear, like, and then the detective was the hero and saved the day, you know, and the criminal was uh, thrown in prison and forgotten forever, right? Like, that's not an interesting story. Um, So I think, yeah, I really wanted to kind of tease out that complexity a little bit here. You know, there are some essays Um, or the chapters in this book that um, focus on outlaws that um, it kind of does glorify the outlaw a little bit, um, which I went back and forth on, you know, I think that's a little bit of a a moral ambiguity, but there is something interesting and compelling about these stories, right? And um, thinking about, you know, the motivations of people, why they do things, the legacy that they have, um, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think of, uh, the pirate, you know, the woman that, that was, it's one of your final chapters. I, um, and I guess we don't really know what her name was. Um, the reign of the pirate queen is the name of your chapter. And you write, there were few female pirates in Europe and, and, and America because for centuries men thought it was bad luck for women to work on ships. But in China, many women lived their lives on the sea. Um, and her name was Ching Shi, as far as we know historically, but she had another name. Um, but I kind of loved that that story was in there. And I'm sure she was a brutal and terrible person. But from the perspective of just being a woman and looking at somebody who lived in the early 19th century, I think, right? Um, or maybe mid 19th century. I mean, that's a very, that's a fascinating story from a point of view of a woman anyway. Yeah, I think it's, that's kind of a, the example that I was thinking of too is, is um, you know, somebody might have been very brutal, like she, Ching Shi might have been very brutal, probably was to get by as a pirate. I mean, that's not, you know, just an easygoing profession, generally speaking. Um, <laughs> but there's something about her sort of legacy as um, a pirate captain, and she was incredibly powerful. Um, she had a lot of influence. She also was just an interesting person. You know, she had um, a really strict code of conduct on her boat, like moral code of conduct on her boat um, that guided her pirates' behavior, which were almost all men. Um, so it's kind of an interesting um, historical story, I guess. And and yeah, she might not have been the best person, you know, but she's still an interesting character, like you exactly, said. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, to, to what you just said about her strict code of conduct, if a pirate went to shore twice without permission, he would be put to death. <laughs> the end. He would also be put to death for disobedience disobeying a superior officer and for cheating on his wife. Now, that was interesting. They're allowed to get married, but not to anybody on the ship. And then if they cheat, they get put to death as do the girlfriend, the girlfriends. Um, that was interesting. I mean, that's a pretty strict code. <laughs> so, yes, very, very strict code of conduct. <laughs> yeah. But then the other thing, and I don't mean to d- do a spoiler for the story, but um, I will just say that in the end, um, the Chinese government, like, worked with her to a certain extent to um, to get back control of her 
areas. Um, and that was impressive to me. I mean, she had to be very powerful for the whole Chinese government to say, okay, <laughs> we'll work with you. Yeah, I think it's like they tried every other way, I think, and then realized that, um, you know, on the seas, she was really formidable and uh, they just couldn't compete, um, which is really interesting, I think, to to have that kind of power. I mean, it was sort of her own empire, you know, right. on, on the ocean. Yeah, right. right. Um, let's see. You, you have a timeline of forensic science, um, which was kind of fun. I, I also wanted to just mention that the design of the book is very attractive and engaging. It kind of draws you in. And I'm not a middle schooler, but I think it's um, it's engaging f- for, for me, too. But I think I could see if I were still a middle schooler, I would have been really interested in kind of uh, the way that it was laid out and some of the fun extra stuff. So including this timeline of forensic science, uh, one of the details is the in the 1880s and 1890s, French forensic scientist Dr. Edmond Locard becomes Locard probably becomes famous for his theory that every contact leaves a trace, meaning that every criminal will leave something behind at the scene of the crime. Um, so the whole timeline was interesting, and I enjoyed reading that. But then when I read that, I was sort of like, I wonder if that's true. Like, does everybody really like? Does nobody nobody get away with not leaving a little trace? Um, what do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's so funny because I feel like that philosophy is so ingrained in like every forensic show, every mystery yes. novel, every it's so um, you know, we have this idea that like nobody could get away uh, without disturbing the scene in some way. Um I'm like you, I think I'm a little skeptical about that. I mean, it feels like um there's there are opportunities to get away without leaving a trace, but maybe I appreciate the attention to detail that uh, you know goes in and um, having somebody. I don't know. I think if as a detective you believe that um, someone will always leave a trace, you do have this sort of acute observational power going on at the scene, which I don't think that's going to hurt anything. Um, but yeah, I'm skeptical. I think I agree with you. I'm a little skeptical. Right. Like on the other hand, um, some criminals are sloppy. And it's interesting because you have a story and I'm not going to have, I don't have his full name here, but there was a criminal named Edwin who was in your chapter called The Case of the Missing Feathers. And he broke into, was it the Natural History Museum? Um, and he yeah. stole um, these bird skins and feathers. Um, and honestly, like he was not the most like crack uh, criminal, you know, I mean, he had a, he had a file on his hard drive with the document named plan for museum invasion dot doc. <laughs> that cracked me up. But there was some sloppiness on the part of the authorities. And it took a long time to figure out, first of all, whether anything had been stolen. Secondly, who did it? So, um, you know, I guess that's the other part of whether or not somebody leaves a trace, you have to actually be looking for it, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I love that uh that chapter just because it is such a sort of amateur criminal, uh like and kind of really bizarre crime. So strange, such a weird crime. And he yeah, really, like he's not a very good criminal at all. I mean, he doesn't really go in with a very thoughtful plan. Um <laughs> and 
I just think it is funny. The the um, plan for museum invasion dot doc is one of my favorite things because I'm absolutely a list maker. And so I would have that dot doc, you know, on my computer. Yeah, but um, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you call it PFMI? <laughs> you know, or- I mean, if you're smarter than I am, I think, because I would be like, well, I won't be able to find that later. You know, like, that's... <laughs> That's the challenge. Um, but yeah, it is it is funny. Um, I think a lot of the time, you know, I these cases, a lot of them are unsolved, right? And a lot of the time it is because of, like nobody's looking um, or they do some sort of minor investigation, but it's too late or um, or somebody just doesn't leave a trace. You know, I think part of what I uh, was interested in with these mysteries too is how many of them are unsolved, which feels going to ask that a little more true to life, you know, than something like I don't know, Law and Order, um, exactly. where they always solve some right. Like it, that's just not really how it goes, I think, in right. in the real world. So yeah, yeah, I think the most accurate thing in Law and Order is that sometimes people get off, even if yeah. the police did figure out who they think did it. But but you're right. I mean, there must be lots of crimes where they never come up even with a suspect because it's just I don't know I mean yeah. even if they have even if they have the science that could solve the crime do they have the resources to really go into every single crime scene looking for fibers or whatever it is <laughs> right and that's the thing I mean if somebody breaks into your car or something and they steal the quarters out of your uh, cup holder right like nobody is going to go in and investigate that and look like maybe there are fingerprints all over your car but is there somebody available to go take the fingerprints? And does anyone really care enough about the quarters in your cup holder to do that? Maybe not, you know? So I think it is a situation where like resources are a problem. Time is a problem. And, um, and just, you know, a lot of cases don't go there. They never are solved. Um, And that could be because, you know, a lot of police departments are sometimes like understaffed or, um, they don't have the expertise that they need to solve a particular case, you know, those things happen. Um, but I think it's kind of an interesting, um, yeah, a little more true to life to have mm-hmm. a lot of unsolved crimes yeah. in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how did you find the cases that you were going to include in the book? Did the publishers sort of, uh, give you some ideas or did you, were you left completely to your own devices to figure out what you wanted to write about? Yeah, I was on my own. uh, And thankfully I have done a lot of reading and listening to true crime content over the last (laughs) decade of my life. Um, And I have some favorite stories. I do. um, I really love the criminal podcast. I I reference it um, in the acknowledgements and it also is sort of a through line. A lot of these, um, stories I first discovered there and then did additional sort of research. Um, And then also just reading. Um, I have sort of a bookmark on my, uh, on my browser, my internet browser uh, with a bunch of weird mystery stories just um, because I enjoyed them. And and I was like, well, great. This is now a treasure trove for this book. (laughs) So yeah. yeah, it was a lot of just sort of, um, racking my own brain of, okay, what stories have I heard that really stand out to me that I remember? Um, 
And I also, when I was in grad school, I taught English composition. Um, and one of my English composition courses, I had a true crime theme. Um, oh, cool. And so a bunch of my students also for the, a final project, they were doing sort of an uh, a creative writing piece inspired by a real crime. Um, and so a lot of uh, ideas came from them too, of things that they found and pulled out and thought were interesting. And um, yeah, I borrowed from their, uh, <laughs> their ideas too. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, that's really cool. And actually, I didn't think about this until just now. But when I was a kid, um, there was a series, and I don't know if it's still popular, called Encyclopedia Brown. Do you remember those books? Have you heard of those yes. books? And it's funny, because that was, it was fiction. It was about this kid who did solve crimes. And I think they were mostly like small potato crimes in his own community. But uh, I don't remember for sure. Um but that would that totally makes sense that, that that kids are interested in this stuff. They really they really are. Um, so that's cool. Um, now, how did you go about researching all of this stuff? Did you? I mean, obviously, as a librarian, you you know how to conduct research. But d- did you run up against a wall and have to kind of set any of your stories aside? There were definitely. I actually almost had to give up on the Pirate Queen oh. um, story because there is um, a really limited amount of uh, information about her. Uh, so that was a challenge, but I kind of pushed through and thankfully found a really great book called, um, pirate women. Oh, good. (laughs) So that was a real, um, it was a great book, a great resource for me. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely had some walls. Um, I researched a lot in newspapers. Like I was looking through really old, uh, newspaper articles a lot of the time and, those some of them are very easy to find online and some are really really not and so yeah there was a lot of um you know doing as much sort of primary source work as i could do and then when i kind of ran up against a wall um you know sometimes you're reading an article and somebody references like oh here's you know a newspaper clipping uh they link to it in their um bibliography and then it's gone, right? It's just not there. And so doing some searching, but um, yeah, trying to just uh, do what I can and and also rely on previous researchers who had done some of that good work too. Um, yeah. Yeah. And are you working on another version of this? Are you on volume two or? I, not at the moment, um, though I definitely have sort of a file in my head right now of, of additional stories that I'm compiling. I think if I, uh, can come up with enough uh, kid-friendly content. That's definitely a possibility. Um, yeah, I think right now I'm I'm focusing my attention on a mystery novel. Oh, wow. Um, a uh, mystery, true, true mysteries. Um, so For yeah, kids? Um, yes. So that's my hope. Yeah. And you, you did, I'm trying to find it, but you, oh, you encourage them to email you if they have a mystery they would like to solve. Do you get emails from kids? I haven't yet, but if you know any kids who have any <laughs> mysteries in mind, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am actively checking the inbox. So yeah, yeah the book's just out recently, right? Yeah. It's yeah. only been out for about two months. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, let's see. I always like to ask my guests uh, what books they've been reading that they might recommend to listeners. And it doesn't have to be a middle grade book or it can be poetry. It can be anything. What what might you recommend that you've enjoyed yeah. lately? Let's see. Um, so two that come to mind. One I'm reading right now, it's called um, Claire DeWitt, 
and the city of the dead. I think I'm getting that right. It's by Sarah Grant. Um, and it is a mystery novel, but it's, um, very sort of metaphysical. Um, there's some interesting, she's a very intuitive detective. And so there's some sort of strange, um, almost poetic feeling detective work that happens. And she quotes, a a French, a private detective from the early 1900s who has this sort of philosophical understanding of detection. Um, And I have been really, really enjoying that book. Um, And then the other book that I uh, just read is Amy Bender's Butterfly Lampshade, which I think has been out for a little while, but it's just a really beautiful book. Um, Really stunning writing, as always, with Amy Bender and um, really heartfelt story. Let's, if we can, let's talk a little bit about your poetry. What What's your poetry like and what matters to you when you're working on your poetry or what inspires you or is it formal or is it, what's your poetry like? Yeah, so I, definitely not formal. Um, I really am interested in sort of like uh, making the domestic or the everyday, the mundane um, feel sort of strange and surreal. So that's mm. a lot of what I um, write as sort of like uh, a twisting of the mundane or it's very much set in a kind of um, an everyday landscape. Um, yeah, and, and no sort of formal convention. Um, I am working on some found poems right now. So those are fun and, and very different from what I normally do. But um, yeah, I think... In terms of my style, um, I really enjoy sort of like an atmospheric um, feeling poem and and also simple language. That's something that I really strive for is how to make a poem really twist and turn and surprise people without sort of relying on extravagant or flowery language, like using sort of common words um, to make something unique and different. Do you have a poem that you would share? Okay. This is called, I wake up. I wake up, it is dawn. I ask you to read to me from the book of material comforts. Your body and L in the window of my memory. Look, here is the photo and here is the baby. And here is the backseat of my father's Chevy Malibu. My body, a cup of water by the sink. You are very serious. Yes, you are not funny at all. You love me in the rain. You love me when you are counting our pennies in the living room, when I'm both a man with a bell and the bell itself. Tell me in music if I matter. I'm afraid the rabbit is so frightened of me. She's forgotten how to move until she does, until she leaves me. And isn't it cool enough, finally, for a walk in the grass? I'm alone, sure but I'm very imaginative. Mm, wow, I love that very much. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I mean, just my first impression, because I haven't seen it ahead of time, but just like the reference to the book of material things and then how you're able to sort of like talk about the cup of water and being the cup of water. And I mean, I'm not saying that I understand the poem, but I enjoy listening to the poem and thinking about these things. It's great. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um kind of one in the series I'm working on and has a, a lot of, it's full of objects. It's a series full of objects, which I, I really enjoy sort of populating poems with with objects. Yeah. Right. Although you have the natural world in there at the end too, which is quite lovely. And it's kind of a relief to step out of the 
room with the L and and the and the material things into the grass. That was lovely. Thanks. Thank you for sharing that. That's wonderful. Do you have like a publishing history with your poems? Do you are you in journals and such? I am. Yeah. So I have um, I have a chapbook that came out earlier this year um, called The Salvage Man, um, and that is available uh, on the internet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the internet, then, of all things <laughs> on the internet. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's from a great a great little. Uh, press that's run by Peter Gizzi. Um, and then I also have a bunch of poems in, in journals and, and that kind of thing too. So Wonderful. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Great. Okay. So for my last question, I always ask, it's a question for advice for writers and mm-hmm. you may take this wherever you like. One thought is, you know, advice for kids who want to write um, anything, poetry, nonfiction, fiction, or advice for people who want to write for kids. Um, yeah. Whatever comes to mind. Yeah, so I would say we'll we'll do advice for people who want to write for kids. Um, I think that's that's something that I wish I, I always kind of wanted to write for kids, and and there's not a lot. I feel like there's not a lot of resources out there for people who want to write for kids, like, mm-hmm. um, or there's not a lot of guidance, you know, on on how um, how to make it work, what to do, how to begin, um, all of these things. So yeah, I think my number one sort of piece of advice is uh, to start with authors that you loved as a kid and think about what they did. Um, And so, you know, I I love Kate DiCamillo. I think she's an amazing, amazing writer and um, just has such a wonderful sensibility. And so a lot of the time, if I'm writing for kids, I'll read just a passage of her work um, and get a sense, like get into her kind of brain space, Mm -hmm. you know, her kind of uh, mode. Um, And that can be a real inspiration for me for writing is just to sort of like inhabit those uh, literary worlds that you really enjoyed either as a kid or, um, you know, just kids books that you like. I think a lot of us also like I came to Kate DiCamillo a lot later um, in my life. She's not really like a, um, I liked because of Winn-Dixie, but um, you know, that's that's not something I read a lot as a kid, but, you know, just being in that sort of uh, that mode of somebody you really admire, I think, can be a, a way in, you know, to to tap into that voice. Because I think that can be the hardest thing if you're writing for kids is getting out of your sort of adult brain space and and thinking about like, you know, tapping into more of a sense of wonder, um, tapping into a different way of of thinking and writing and speaking. And so, yeah, that's that's something that I did quite a bit is diving into somebody's work that I, I really love and mm-hmm. using it. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. That's great advice. I, w- I want to mention again, the name of your new book is Curious Cases, True Crime for Kids, Hijinks, Heists, Mysteries, and More, published by Bloom Books for Young Readers. I've been speaking with Rebecca Valley. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to be here. So thank you. From the Media Factory in the South End of Burlington, Vermont, this is 99.3 FM, WBTV LP Burlington, streaming online at 993wbtv.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. That was an interview with Vermont author and poet Rebecca Valley. You can learn more about her work at RebeccaValley.com. 
National Novel Writing Month is coming, um, and I've done a couple of, uh, I can't remember if I've done one or two shows on NaNoWriMo, but anyway, finally, after years of considering it, I'm actually going to participate, if not officially and fully, but a friend and I are going to exchange work, keeping each other on target with deadlines and ideas, and uh, I'm working on a revision, but it needs a complete rewrite, and I'm hoping to do this in November as part of NaNoWriMo. So I'm wondering, what about you? Are you taking part? Uh, if so, how and what will that look like? Uh, I would love to do a brief check-in on the show next month from time to time with uh, NaNoWriMo participants asking how it's going. Um, so if you're interested in speaking with me on a broadcast in November, email uh, you, you're welcome to email writethebook at gmail.com. This week's Write the Book prompt was generously suggested by my guest, Rebecca Valley. Let a main character or a community about which you are writing grapple with an unsolved mystery. This mystery could be the main thrust of the story, or it could linger in the background, serving to amplify your characters, possibly contributing to the ways in which they change. Good luck with your work in the coming week, and tune in next week for another prompt or suggestion. I would love your feedback about the show. Let me know if you'd like me to interview certain authors or if you have events to announce, be sure to tell your friends about Write the Book and about the podcast site, writethebook.podbean.com. Um, that's where you can get all the archived episodes going right back to the beginning of the show. New and recent episodes of Write the Book are available wherever you get your podcasts. Just subscribe to have them sent to your podcast app. A reminder to listeners who write, I do share a writing prompt each week, so be sure to access the archives of Write the Book if you'd like to find any that you might have missed. You can also access the podcast and link to our social media presence at my own website, which is shelaughswithoutus.com. And if you like the show, please rate it where you find it. Talk about it with people who might enjoy it. Up next at five, stay tuned for Feminist Frenzy, the radio show with a feminist agenda. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro, and you've been listening to Write the Book. This is 99.3 FM, WBTV LP, Burlington, Vermont, streaming online at 99.3 wbtv.org. Stay well and have a great week.